Romans chapter 14, continuing on with our series in Romans. And uh, just a reminder of what we've learned so far from chapters 12 and 13. Uh, We learned that uh, everything we should be doing is in view of God's mercy. Paul in chapters 1 through 11 has uh, theologized a lot. He's uh, really given us a great understanding of who we are as the people of God, um, what we have and why we have it. And then he comes to chapter 12 verse 1 and he says, Therefore in view of God's mercies I urge you. So all that we have learned about uh, this theology, about who we are and and, uh, and, and uh, we are the people of God and why we're that way and so forth now uh, has to be lived out it's not just theory it needs to develop into practice and he says the motivating force for this is that we now have a greater understanding of the mercy of God and there's been an emphasis on that uh, this morning in, in uh, a couple of the presentations and that, that's great we now have a deeper understanding of God's mercy And so because we have a deeper understanding of God's mercy, we are called to be God's people. And this will involve us being individuals in community, that we no longer live only for ourselves. Sure, we have responsibilities for ourselves, uh, but not only for ourselves. We have responsibilities for others as well. And so we are certainly individuals and we are to respect ourselves as individuals and and what God has given to us. We are are members of the body of Christ, but we are members of the body of Christ. So the individuals uh, in community. We have responsibilities towards one another. We also saw in chapter 13 uh, that uh, how we deal with with all of this uh, in the belief that the end is near. The end is near, so so don't uh, sit around uh, being idle, Paul says, uh, but uh, but be actively living lives that reflect well the teachings of Scripture. And this was Paul's theme in Thessalonians. We were reminded last week, and it continues uh, to be his theme as we look at Romans. Um, what he's saying is the fact that we belong to another kingdom doesn't mean that we're exempt from the responsibilities of living our everyday lives. Uh, within this kingdom, within this world and being responsible citizens. So being God's people uh, in the world has political ramifications. We saw that last week. And overall, uh, the call to live responsibly is a call to love one another. A call to love one another. So in view of God's mercy, love one another. That's the message that He's given to us so far, so so far, in chapters twelve and thirteen. So we come to chapter fourteen. And chapter fourteen adds to the information that we already have now on what a community of faith will look like. In chapters twelve and thirteen, we've seen it's a response to the mercy of God that we're individuals in community that that we're a diversified bunch but there is to be unity amidst that diversity that we're responsible as citizens in the world and that we're to love one another now chapter 14 says we are to be accepting of one another and accepting of the differences of opinion that exist amongst us he's getting very practical he could have left it at the end of chapter uh, 13 and said love one another and we'd all sort of gone off and decided, oh yeah, well what that actually means is this and that. But now he's getting down to some nitty gritty 
and uh, chapter 14 is a very divisive passage. <laughs> it's trying to actually deal with divisions, but it creates divisions in the church. So it's a very difficult passage to deal with publicly. It's the sort of passage that actually raises more questions uh, than it does give answers. And uh, it's a great passage to be discussed in small groups, but a difficult passage to handle in a larger group. He says, so what we're we're called to be as the people of God is people who accept each other and, and, and who accept each other as people who hold different opinions. Now that we're called to be non-judgmental within the community of faith. That we're called to recognise who the master is and who we actually have to report to. Uh, the master is not uh, some other person in the church. The master is uh, uh, God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that we have to report to. We've got to give account to him. And we need to be mindful of, of that, that you have to give account to him and you have to give account to him and I have to give account to him. He's the boss. He's the master. And so we need to live our lives in the view of that fact that every one of us are reporting directly. We have a direct reporting line <laughs> to Jesus. Uh, so with that in mind, we're to live lives that will, will not uh, cause others to stumble and uh, we're to act in love at all times. And he says if we don't do that, what is actually good can become evil. Don't allow the, 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 the things that you hold as good and true to become evil by, by flaunting them, by rubbing them in other people's faces and so forth. Act in love at all times. And we're called to righteousness, we're called to peace, we're called to joy, we're called to mutual edification where we are committed to building each other up and we're called to faith, to live in faith with one another. Well, that's what Romans chapter 14 actually says to us. I think it might be good to to stop and to read the whole passage. We've had some of the verses read to us Let's read the whole passage in context. Romans 14, I'm reading from the NIV. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord and he who eats meat eats to the Lord for he gives thanks to God. He who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. 
It's written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. The main message of chapter 14 is that it's an anti-vilification policy of the early church in a multicultural context it's saying don't vilify one another just because you've got different opinions it's actually a first century call to tolerance and whenever you've got a call to tolerance it's going to create some problems it's going to create some discussion and debate and dispute (laughs) in and of itself and so even in a chapter that's, that's all about uh, not uh, condemning each other and judging each other on disputable matters that chapter will create dispute in and of itself how do I apply this? where does it apply? when does it apply? when doesn't it apply? all legitimate questions but here it is a first century call to tolerance basically it's saying don't bag other people for what they believe. Don't bag other people for what they believe. And the word in the NIV is disputable, but what does disputable mean in this context? Now that can be asked for a few reasons, I guess. One of the reasons would be, how can we get out of this? <laughs> can we interpret disputable to mean only this, so we get out of it for all of this? Or it can be a legitimate question and saying, well, I don't know how to apply this passage. Let's deal with the second reason. What does it mean? The primary meaning of the word that's translated disputable in the NIV is the thinking of a person within his or herself. It's what I think about certain matters. It's translated in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, as his opinions. Don't judge another person because of his opinions what another person considers to be right. That's what's being translated here as disputable matters. Don't pass judgment on another person for what he or she considers to be right. Well, what would disputable matters be? And I guess this becomes the main point of argument. What limits are we to put on this acceptance? Uh, One of the, 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 the major 
hermeneutical principles, principles of how to interpret the scripture correctly is to interpret scripture with scripture. You don't build a whole theology of something on one passage. You have to see what other passages are saying about it too. And that's very important. And certainly uh, this chapter isn't giving us all that we need to know about disputable matters. For instance, does a passage like this apply to false teaching? Well, you know, somebody's got false teaching, just let him go. You know, let him have his own opinions. Well, we learn from other passages like the letters in Revelation that God hates false teaching. He's going to deal with a church that tolerates false teaching. So, no, it doesn't seem to apply to that. You see, we interpret Scripture with Scripture and that's very important. So what are the limits on this acceptance? It seems that there's a continuum here. Down one end of the continuum, we've, we've got the idea that oh, everything is okay. Every, every, you, you don't pass judgment or you don't, you don't criticise another opinion and that includes false teaching. Everything's all right. There's no black and white. Well, this passage is not dealing with that end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum is everything that I believe is right. And that makes you wrong in anything that you disagree with me on. And that's the other end of the continuum and that's where this passage is addressing. Have I still got you or am I getting too complicated? To understand the whole of the continuum, we've got to have different passages. We've got to understand different passages. So what is this passage saying? Well, I suppose there are some things that are beyond question that this passage is not relating to murdering your wife for burning the toast for instance <laughs> barracking for Collingwood things like that absolutely beyond dispute but there are other, many other matters that, that are certainly questionable in a lot of people's minds when I was growing up it was length of hair for a man or for a boy my father would use it quite often <laughs> um more recently, it's, uh, it, it, in some churches especially, it's alcohol use or dancing or purchasing on Sundays or the role of women in the church or the structure of church meetings. In some places, it's uh, homeschooling versus public schooling versus Christian school. These become disputable matters, anything that causes dispute within the community of faith. Uh, in other churches that I, I hear frequently it's evangelism versus social justice the church should not be involved in social justice issues uh, because it distracts you from what we're all about in evangelism and there's a myriad of bioethical issues and moral issues that uh, we, could, uh, we, we, we could debate until uh, the cows come home I guess political preferences, all of those sorts of things Differing opinions that become important from time to time and in place to place. These are the sorts of things uh, that Paul could be addressing here. The matters that Paul applies this teaching to were probably beyond dispute to many of the people in his audience. Uh, probably some people had made up their mind, or, or definitely we know, that some people in the church had made up their mind that it's wrong to eat meat because of the meat offered to idols problems that the early church grappled with. Uh, we must worship on uh, the, uh, the, the Sabbath day. And so the bringing over of cultural Jewish uh, laws, rules and regulations into a church, uh, these were a really big deal 
They were a big deal in the early churches that grappled with how to become an inclusive and multicultural community of faith as the Jewish movement was becoming a worldwide globalised movement, as the Jewish movement was grappling with how do we accept people from other uh, cultures, Gentiles, into the church. But not only accept them into the church, but help them to feel very much at home and at peace and growing within the church. And so these issues were certainly cultural issues, but they were being made by some as much greater than cultural issues. These issues of dietary laws and Sabbath observance and probably circumcision, although he doesn't deal with that one particularly here. We certainly saw it dealt with in in the book of Acts. Uh, these, These cultural issues were becoming much more than culture. They were bigger than culture and there were uh, Christian Jews in the church who were saying uh, when, when people come to faith or at least when they grow in the faith they will come to a realisation that these matters need to be dealt with and they will agree with us. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. There are differing opinions on these things and we are to accept them as being okay. That was tough. Paul was dealing with some big issues here. These are not light issues. <laughs> These are issues that were dividing the church. Take, take your mind back to, to Acts and, and, and uh, to the uh, council in Jerusalem. Uh, these were, were issues that were threatening the church's existence as it moved into a multicultural environment, as it became more than Jewish. So these were big issues. So that tells me that the principles that we have in this passage are to be applied not just to the minor things, whether a man should have short hair or long hair, and I guess that's a major thing in years past, but not just to those sorts of things, but to some of the bigger issues as well. And Paul has the courage to deal with those here. Another question that arises out of this is how long should such tolerance go on for? Because some people uh, look at a passage like this and and, and they say, oh, this is just for new believers. This is just while a person is growing in the faith and ultimately they'll grow into seeing that what I believe is the right way. I want to tell you that I don't read that in this passage at all. It doesn't only apply to new Christians. Because if it does, that says that we expect people to grow into our way of believing as they mature. And if they don't, then these principles don't apply. I don't think this is what the passage is saying at all. I think this passage is a call to live a life of acceptance of diversity as the community of faith. So how do we do that? How do we live such a life? Well, Paul has already told us in chapter 12 that we're to have renewed minds, that we're to think differently. And that's how we're to live differently. It's not just a matter of changing behaviour, it's a matter of changing how we think. And so applying that overriding principle to chapter 14 and to the differences of opinion that we may have on, on, on these matters within the church, it's really a decision that we make. It's with the mind. We decide to. And then Paul lists a whole lot of things in, in chapter 14 that are matters of the renewed mind. For instance, in view of all this, 
we need to decide to, one, accept people who are different and who hold different opinions. Acceptance. Accepting them not as spiritually inferior in need of growth but as bona fide members of the community of faith. It's interesting in passing to note that what Paul calls the weak person in verse 2 is the one who is more restrictive. Uh, The person who uh, can't eat meat is the weak person according to Paul. And we would oftentimes turn it around the other way. We've got these restrictions on the Christian life and we would see people who don't hold hold to those restrictions as being weak. Paul is choosing to use it the other way, probably to drive home his point. Um, as, uh, As people of God seeking to live this renewed mind, he says, don't pass judgment. Don't pass judgment either on their place in the kingdom because there are those who would say, I I, I question whether you're in the kingdom. I question your Christianity if you hold to that belief. He says, don't do that. It's not your business to do that. But also, don't pass judgment on their maturity in Christ because, as I've said, we might say, well, he's obviously in the kingdom but he needs to grow into the way that I believe. We might not put it that way, but that's what we mean. True maturity is what I believe. As people who are seeking to live this renewed mind in this, uh, in, in this diverse community, it says don't look down on others. Don't treat other people as inferior just because they're different to you. Don't condemn them. And then it says be fully convinced in your own mind with the renewed mind, be fully convinced in your own mind of what you believe to be true. That's an interesting one. Uh, when, when, when we hold an opinion that we're not really convinced of, one of the ways uh, to, uh, to help us to feel better about that uh, is to get other people to see it as correct. And it sort of justifies the way that I believe. But those who are fully convinced, when we're fully convinced of the way that we live, we're more likely to allow diversity diversity of opinion, differences of opinion. And so he says, be fully convinced in your own mind and live under the lordship of Christ. And so our attitude should be to live humbly under the lordship of Christ, mindful at all times of the mercies of God. What does that mean? Well, he says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. It seems that he's saying... Uh, one one of the, 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 the greatest goals that you can have as a community of faith is peace and mutual edification, building each other up. We are called to be peacemakers. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace in a very diverse situation such as the community of faith. We are called to be such peacemakers. He says, look, this is so important. This is so important. It's better not to eat. <laughs> It's better not to to eat uh, meat if there are others around who think that's wrong. It's better not to to, to drink uh, alcohol if there are others around who who think that's wrong. It's it's, it's better to give up your own rights. Oh yes, you've got them. You've got the rights uh, to do that as people in Christ. But 
peace and mutual edification is so important it's better to give up your rights than to cause other people to stumble for the greater good of peace and mutual edification. Then he even says, basically, keep your opinions to yourself. (laughs) Well, how is that to be applied? None of us would talk, (coughs) especially males. (laughs) We don't talk about feelings, we talk about opinions, thoughts, ideas. None of us would speak to each other. But I think what Paul is saying is, look, don't, don't flaunt your opinions. Don't, all right, you, you might say you're free to do this and that and the other thing, but don't go around flaunting that. Keep your opinions to yourself. Don't cause other people to stumble. Don't cause dissension and dispute in the community of faith just because you've got one opinion that you think is terribly free and you can flaunt it. Don't do that. It's much better to seek peace and mutual edification than it is to flaunt your freedom in the light of others. I think that's what he's saying. So the question is, how on earth do we apply all this? So many questions come to mind. You know, but what about this? What about this? Does it apply to this? And what about this? Well, I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes in quietness now to think about what we've been saying I'd like you to think prayerfully about anything that you hold strongly that others in this church might disagree with and then how do the principles that we've talked about coming out of this chapter apply to you and to that situation and the opinions that you have as I thought about this I thought that's the best way to apply it (laughs) because you know you know how this applies think about those things that you hold strongly that other people in this church or maybe in other churches would disagree with and how do you apply the principles that this passage is talking about to those things what changes do you need to make to fall into line with these principles so that the community of faith will look more like what God wants it to be in view of his mercy? I'm going to be quiet now just for a couple of minutes. If we can prayerfully consider that, I think that that would be good application. As I said before, this sort of message raises more questions than it gives answers and it's this uh, sort of thing that is really good I think to discuss uh, in uh, in your small groups and discuss over some coffee or uh, whatever to uh, check out how can you apply these principles uh, to the matters that you've uh, thought of let's pray Father I pray that you would give us the grace and the wisdom to live together in harmony as shining examples of what it is to be your people in your world. In Jesus' name, amen.